Hey, I'm Greg Utanis. I'm executive producer and director of the pilot on Banshee. Hi, Jonathan Tropper. I'm uh, executive producer and writer of the pilot on Banshee. G'day, I'm Anthony Starr, and I play Lucas Hood on Banshee. So, Jonathan, why dive in like this? What was the inspiration behind the, the opening, like to start with him getting out of jail like this? Well, we really wanted the beginning of this series to play like an origin story. Not the original origin, but the origin of the Banshee story is Lucas Hood getting out of prison after 15 years, and we thought this would kind of have a very mythic, mythic feel to it, watching him step over that bar and, and walk into a new world. One of the things I love that, Ant, that you did here was the first time we see Lucas's face, there's all that complexity of like what is waiting on the other side of that threshold. Mm. How'd you feel? Like, what what was you? really going on is that it was, what was it, 125 degrees? And I was just thinking about getting to a water canteen. <laughs> if, whether I would be able to walk six steps without passing out. I like that in short order, you know, I think like something that's so different that's on network television is that need to fill every second with dialogue and hear the fact that, you know, it's almost five minutes in before Lucas talks for the first time. Yeah, I mean, I haven't seen that in any other show, so it was great. You know, once I saw this first episode, I couldn't get my head around quite what was going on once it was all put together, but I think it's a really strong opening. What I kind of like about the opening also is, is when you watch this episode, you're not sure if this is a good man or a bad man, and so that by the time he gets to Banshee, you're not even sure, is he coming here to do bad things or good things? Are we supposed to be rooting for him? And it's that kind of moral ambiguity that we want to follow throughout the entire series, so it's great to set it up in a way that you're not sure if you should like this guy or not. I love that last little piece with Lucas and the Corvette the, uh, and the Trans Am. It was just the, like, feeling the juice and the power and the freedom. You know, we really fought hard, actually, to make sure we took the show to New York. Was the show always opening in New York? Yeah, the plan was always, plan was always to open it in New York. What I love is right here, you walk in, New York, New York, New York, Charlotte. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I love yeah, that, yeah, yeah. you know, that we film these things in, in such different But it's times. seamless as well. Yeah. How do you track that, Anthony? Like, those are nearly a month apart, those two things. I learn the whole episode before we get going. I do a lot of prep work before we get going so that everything, it doesn't matter what we do on the day, I know where it is. Because I don't like learning lines the night before or anything like that. I can't keep up. I'm too slow. Right. Did you kind of have to do that with almost the entire season because we went out of order as well as you know, we go out of order within an episode of shooting, but we also episodically went out of order? Yeah, that was that, that's probably one of the hardest. You know, most shoots that I've done have been, you know, one or two episodes, but still in blocks. They might have within the episodes you're shooting out of order, but the series would sort of go back to back. So this was a tricky one in that respect. But, um, you know, I, I'm a nerd and being slightly afraid of getting it wrong means that I prep a little bit harder than yeah. than I need to. I think we all do. Okay. Yeah. Okay, okay. Stop the carnage. Wasn't this wig that Job's wearing here, didn't this wig shut down production for two hours or something? Yeah, we had a hard day. It wasn't actually the original idea for the wig, and it's sort of where we landed and were able to achieve, you know. But tell me a little bit about the inspiration on Job, Jonathan. Job really came out of the blue. We were just, we really, with every character on the show, we wanted to be really careful that nobody came out of central casting, that everybody was a completely new experience for the viewer. And 
you know, when we were when we were thinking about Job, it was just this thought that, you know, what would make him really interesting and different and the idea that he's somebody who this is a show about identity. Everybody's somebody different. You know, this is a, a guy who's a criminal who becomes a cop who's really a criminal and it's you a know, reinvention. Et cetera. Right? Yeah, everyone's reinvented and, and so Job is a guy who reinvents himself on a daily basis. Sometimes he's masculine, sometimes he's feminine. He he sort of blends but he can blend into anything and at the same time he's the most he sticks out more than anybody and, and we just wanted somebody who really just challenged your perception of, of what a man is and what a masculine man is what femininity is we just you know across the board it was just something that would be different shooting the sequence was the most amazing Experience. This was my first time in New York. We oh, were up for two days. Yeah, my first experience of New York was walking out on a Fifth Avenue closed down. Yeah, it was a hundred degrees. We uh, on like one of the hottest days of the year. Just for anybody interested in the production side of what we did at Banshee, everything you saw in New York. You know, we flew in to New York on one day. We did a couple of the driving shots of Lucas. You know, coming into the city, and then this day we shot everything you're seeing in one day. In fact. From this point on, we closed Fifth Avenue for about four hours and shot this whole bus sequence in about four hours. And I, you know, we're actually including on this DVD a, a whole like how we did this sequence that oh, you're you watching are? right now. So yeah. they'll see the road cones. They'll like see... all these cars that I'm dodging now were just road cones on the day. Everything that you're seeing right now is all computer generated. Yeah. Every car, you know, on the day. You know, and how did you feel like running around empty Fifth Avenue dodging cones? Honestly, pretty ridiculous, but you know, I've done more ridiculous things, so. Scale of 1 to 10, it was about a 6. You know, and it was cool, because like, right now, like, this is just, when Ant rolled over that, it was just a piece of trunk. On some cinder blocks, and you know, we added the CG car, and we had to get onto the sidewalk by 10 a.m., so this is like at 10 a.m. Yeah. exactly on the day that we shot this. What I love about the stun sequences is like this as well, like rolling over the car, and that there's no, that roll over the car, apart from the CGI bus in the background, there's nothing else that's fake. You know, that's usually in this show, it's the actors doing doing the business, mm -hmm. which is tough on the body, but it works really well on the finished product. Having grown up in New York, it was it was really a thrill to shut down Fifth Avenue. That's never been done before, right? Oh, I'm sure. It's I know, we, we, we couldn't, really? Hasn't been done? Uh, rumored. Wow. Supposedly. Nice. Oh, Everywhere cool. else has, but... So, quick story about the title sequence was, this title sequence is created by uh, Tin Punch Media, which is founded by Biz Stone, who co-founded Twitter, and my brother, Jason. The concept behind it, or the goal behind it, was to create something that changes every week. So if you guys are catching Banshee for the first time, you'll notice that every week the pictures change on the table, on the cards associated with the actors, so that it's, you know, not only the actor's card, but the character's foreshadowing and psychological interior, you know, life for the story. So we wanted to do three things, have a social component built in, we wanted to have the titles change every week, and we wanted each character's title card to tell like a micro 1.5 second story. So you know, pictures worth a thousand words, and you know the great thing is the combination uh, on the dial opens up content online that talks about the the meaning behind some of the photographs. And you know, I love Methodic Doubt's music. They awesome. did an incredible. Yeah, the music is fantastic. Get a lot thing. of comments on that. Yeah. Like, who's that? Who's that? Yeah, they had Methodic Doubt hadn't done uh, any composition for film or TV. They had done trailers. Right really? out of Canada. Yeah. So this is their first uh, debut as well. Are they Canadian? Uh, yeah. Mm, okay. Yeah. 
I call all of these shots the witness shots. Anytime we see the Amish working in the fields. How did you, why, why the Amish backdrop? Did that have anything to do with any religious background for you or David, or what inspired you to set it here? Well, first of all, I will say that this sequence of Lucas riding into town from the moment the credits end till the part coming up right now where he rides past the Banshee sign, it's one of those moments when you're doing television, which is such a collaborative experience, like right here. Like, this is exactly how I imagined it in my head before it ever got oh, you cool. know, shot. And, you know, you don't have those moments as often as you think, just because, you know, you write it, an actor interprets it, a director interprets it, production has certain limitations. But that whole beginning of him driving in, it was 100% how I had seen it in my head before it was ever written. So it was very exciting. But as far as the Amish, it was just, you know, I come from a Jewish background. David, you know, my co-creator, David Schickler, comes from a Catholic background. So we both had strong religious backgrounds, and we both kind of come a long way from those backgrounds while at the same time still maintaining an attachment to them. So for us, using the Amish backdrop was, was a way to kind of tell stories also about identity, about the things people are, the things people pretend to be, and the way community forces you into certain boxes, which is, you know, thematically a lot of what's going on in this show. Let's face it, there's a lot of heat around Amish at the moment. Yeah, but when we but when we created the show, there wasn't. It takes three, you know, it takes three so years. So you're making them hot. It takes three or four years, and in that time, all these reality shows, which only take, you know, I don't know, 20 minutes to make, stepped in. Just to talk for a second about the look of the show, Chris Faluna was our director of photography, and I'd worked with Chris several times in television, both in pilots and episodic, and... You know, one of the things that we talked about was giving New York, I remember one day in New York, I saw this like brown haze over the city, which made the city kind of a very warm, inviting place. And I've seen so many urban portrayals with much cooler, bluer approach to New York. And I just didn't feel that ever captured the New York that I saw personally. And I, you know, one of the things that we talked about was that there, you know, Chris would always say that there's this like permanent eclipse over Banshee, that there's this, you know, we, we gave this very small town a very urban texture and we gave New mm -hmm. York, you know, the, the more pastoral, warmer, richer look so that we always went back to it, that New York was kind of romanticized and, you know, a place of past and history and, and where mm. they came from. I'm sorry, every time I see this shot, I remember we, we did this, <laughs> Spirit you know, fingers. The, 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 exactly. Uh, Anthony, like he, he would, he would often open these like, cause we only just started on his hands and it was something that we added almost at the last minute. What did we do? 15, 16? Yeah. Takes of it? To get all the mechanics of this. This is actually, this is you know, one shot, yeah. one shot that, that we wanted to also show the geography of the house, but you know, there was something, you know, kind of great to be able to take this whole journey um, all the way through. and. You know, Chris, we're struggling to balance the light inside versus outside because it was towards the end of the day. And Max, honey, you have your inhaler? One of those things where we have a quick calculation. If you add every factor that could go wrong, that's roughly the amount of takes it's going to take. Mm. So it took about 15 takes. You know, something didn't line up. And, uh, you know, it was... Somewhere out there. Right now, somewhere what out there. What were you there, doing there's, outside? There's me. Running underneath the window is me somewhere out to a bush and then lying down on the ground. Oh, really? And the, yeah, getting ready to pop up. So it was all a series of cues. There I am. And then what, and, what is happening right and now? And I jump behind a bush. That's just a great <laughs> on, moment. On hands and knees behind a bush right there. <laughs> It's a great moment. I love her reaction to the doorbell. Like, I mean, it's so, it's so, like, she almost can't deal with it. And I love that, like, we take, you know, 
behind here and you know take it all the way through but we tried you know one of the things i mean it solved you know we were under a very tight schedule on banshee so you know doing a oneer you know and, and and landing those kinds of scenes by the way i this came in and out of the script at different points and i i love this scene i think it shows a great side of gordon's character yeah mm-hmm. it's a side we're definitely going to hit much harder in season 2 as his reliance on painkillers grows at the same time that his life is falling apart in other areas. Yeah, we, we often went for more unconventional ways of covering scenes. So like we photographed that kind of over in the back of Deva, you know, some of Michael Mann's work was very inspirational for us, you know, that kind of subjectivity that, that you know, his work is often captured and being able to be inside the head of the characters. For us, this kind of documentary style, but these wonders, you know, sometimes solved production problems, but also just involved the characters and let the actors mm. play these scenes out and and the cast is so talented that you could just hold on you guys and not have to like cut yeah. around anything. Hey Greg, tell them about that hat on the bar. So the the hat was a little nod to all the sheriffs on TV, the cowboy wearing hat sheriffs on TV, you know. <laughs> One of them's my other show that I developed and uh, there's a couple other, you know, sheriffs on TV with hats and so we wanted to symbolically, you know, let everybody know that we're not those guys. And whiskey neat. Whiskey's fun. And Frankie here, I mean, we, you know, Frankie Faison is kind of everybody's favorite on set. And, you know, he really determined that his character will always be wearing different kinds of hats. That was very important I would say to Frankie. <laughs> as, uh-huh. as Anthony gives a double take. I like his hat. Anthony Starr is one of, uh, one of our favorites on set. Nah, he's awesome. Frankie is great, and it's great to have that kind of veteran, you know, experience on, on set. How did you, in terms of, like, establishing That's that sweet. kind of... Because I think one of the things that surprised me was the chemistry between Lucas and Sugar. Um, he's a big, warm guy. I responded to that immediately. And, and I, I always go with what's real. Mm-hmm. You know, so if you really don't get on with someone, I think it's easy to use that. Or if you really do get on with someone, I think that can't help but emanate. That said, you know, the interesting thing about him is he throws comments in when you're working with him. You know, good conversation piece. Just to keep you on your toes. He has a way of sort of push-pulling you through a scene. Leaking taps. So you never quite know where you've got him, which I don't know if he means to do that or not, but, you know, he's, he's the old bull, so it was kind of like me trying to keep up with him. One of the things that maybe people are aware of, but we shot the series out of order. In fact, this episode one is actually the fourth episode that we actually shot so that the, the cast and the characters and all of us kind of could settle mm-hmm. into the show. Did you find that to be helpful to the process? Really beneficial, especially when you see the finished product. You know, I think the first series of any show is going to be a feat-finding process to a certain extent. And I think by the time we shot this, you know, like you said, all the characters were much more firmly established within ourselves, and we had a really good rhythm with the crew. Everyone was moving as one unit. Most pilots that I see are weakened because of that newness. So it worked for me. We had an incredible luxury you don't normally get, which was to not have to shoot our pilot first because we were in that really rare case where we had a 10-episode order without having to shoot our pilot, and that you know, that gave us the luxury. And then Greg had the idea of taking that luxury and, and shooting out of order so that by the time we shot the pilot, everyone was really on their game. And I think, you know, those of us who are involved on the production side of it, you know, whether it's the actors or, or Greg or myself, like, we can actually see the difference. Uh, you can totally when, see the difference. Yeah, when, when you watch So it. we do that in New Zealand quite a lot. Actually, we often shoot like three and four before one and two. Mm. We're so advanced. Yeah. We don't have thumbs, but that is actually advanced because, like, we don't. It's just not a. It's not a traditional model. 
In fact, I think even if you had the idea, I think at most networks you'd have a hard time getting that idea through. There'd I don't think there. you can do it over here because of the way that the industry is structured and, yeah. and, and the way things. And work. I really, I really respect Cinemax for going with that risk. You know, and mm. being able to, yeah. to take that chance and have the confidence in the work and your guys' writing to be able to surrender to that. Yeah, but I think we benefited on two fronts. First of all, I think the pilot is just fantastic. But also episode four, which is the first episode we shot, feels in a good way like a pilot because it, it became a very robust episode because we shot it as our first episode. And there's an excitement that went along with that. So we ended up sort of with both episode one and episode four benefiting from, from that freshness. And I love the, the, the subjectivity that you got in here with the shots. You know, we talked a lot about a, a sense of fate and a sense of destiny. You know, that Lucas is one of these, these people where he walks into a room and trouble will find him. Mm -hmm. and it's a known quantity and also that, that it's a comfort zone, you know. This is probably the most comfortable he's been in a twisted sort of way. The most comfortable he's been since he got out of prison. But either way, the steak is gonna get cold. You can always reheat a steak, but it's never It's funny, for me, this was always, you know, this scene I, I grappled with a lot as director because so many collisions of coincidence and so mm. forth were coming together. And, you know, I, I kept thinking about it like an infection, you know, like when something artificial is in the body, like everything comes to attack it. And it's like exactly what you said, it draws, you know, things are sort of... And the way the camera follows now, this track, is on what you're talking about, you know, it sort of draws you in. Like something more something powerful than him is, is, driving like, him, is yeah. lifting him out of the yeah, chair, yeah, yeah. pulling him into, literally inserting himself into the middle, which is, you know, what he symbolically does throughout the whole series. I love that, that Cinemax used that shot of him getting up from the bar and walking as that sort of the iconic Lucas Hood moment to use in all in the trailers right. and in the countdown to the episodes. For what? 200 bucks Sugar has in the register at 4 p.m. on a Tuesday? Come on. The sheriff. It's the way the, the origin of the character here, you know, this yeah. is where everything, you know, everything happened in this bar, which is, you know, kind of Western-ish. We shot this in one day. It was a massive, massive scene. What, what was behind, like, how did you guys arrive at making this the moment? Well, we really came at this like like an origin story, and every, every origin story has that big moment where somebody becomes. And this is the moment where our guy becomes Lucas Hood. And it had to be a, a greatly impactful moment. This is the moment that cements his place in the town, his place in the show, his relationship with Sugar. This had to be the moment nobody would forget. This is the moment where he really becomes Lucas Hood. And of course, the partner to this moment is the moment when they're burying the body that we're gonna get to in a little while. But you know, this had to be the centerpiece of the pilot, this, this scene, this is where it all happened. So you added a sauce bottle, so no one would forget it. Yeah, so t talk about that. That's actually <laughs> that's... a good thing to talk about. Like the the violence in it is is one of the things that makes it very memorable. I mean, the steak sauce, yeah. the anvil, like the steak sauce, even more than the, the steak anvil. Steak sauce got a lot of comments when people saw it. Yeah, yeah I, they I, got a lot of feedback. I get a lot of tw Twitter yeah, you know. action about the it steak sauce. It went from ketchup to steak bottle, just out of right. physical thing. But what? what uh... You know, it, there's not going to be a great literary answer here. I've, I'm, I, I, I was a great fan of action movies, and I'm a great fan of, of also the work of, of guys like David Cronenberg and the Coen brothers. And one thing that always struck me about their violence was there was something both naturalistic to it and at the same time hyper real. And so, you know, we just sit there spitballing. You know, if you're sitting in a bar, what, what's a... Uh, what's a cool way to kill somebody? Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, what's on the table? We've got the steak knife, he uses it. We've got the A1 steak sauce, he uses that. We should get an endorsement. I so mean, you really hammered him, though. You stab him. 
Stab him, put a sauce bottle down his throat, and then kick his head into an anvil. Well, the stabbing, when you grab the steak knife and stabbing, that's supposed to be prison instincts taking over. That's called shivving to those in the trade. (laughs) But after 15 years in prison, grabbing that knife and the way you stab him, not... Not like one deep stab, but a whole bunch of those strikes. You know that that is. That's... I got obsessed with watching real. You know, you can see on YouTube the prison stabbing. It's the, really? it, it's like that. You know, there's like 50 different little right. stabs in someone's head yeah. before they're yeah. in, in a few seconds. Stabs. It's crazy. Yeah. They they just they have to work so like quickly and discreetly. Right, yeah. you know, this scene, to me, like is the turning point of the series in a way because I actually like when I cut the pilot together, I, I had this odd reaction that it was, it almost seemed like Gordon and Lucas were the ones that were going to collide and this was going to somehow involve them. It was going to be the story of the DA and mm. Lucas and then the script really came through in a way I didn't expect that, that we subvert that the, you know, that Carrie, the seeming housewife soccer mom is really who the story is about, yeah. you know, and that Lucas is really here for her and that like, this is where like my mind got blown. Yeah, and there was, I remember when we were talking to Alan Ball about this back in the very early stages of writing the pilot, one of the suggestions that had come up was that we try a pass where we come in on the story following with Lucas kind of going around town spying on Gordon and then Gordon and Carrie so that for the first 10 minutes, the viewer thinks he's here for Gordon. You know, yeah. maybe Gordon's the guy that who still put comes him through. away. Or that comes through. We toned it down a bit, but the idea just that like all of a sudden you realize, oh, it's about her, not him. I can smell your perfume from here. One of the things about this scene that I really loved is that, you know, this is not actually what was originally scripted in the pilot, that actually you guys, one of the great things you did for the audition process so that we wouldn't... Because this get, was an audition scene. Yeah, it would, not to get stale, because, you know, we were going to hear certain scenes over and over and over again. And for me as a director, and something I learned from a lecture Spielberg was giving is that he likes to have sides written for the actors to read that aren't the actual ones that are going to be from the picture. And in this case... You guys just blew our minds with this scene, and the scene had more emotional complexity and twist and turns to it that we ended up transplanting the audition version of this into the actual show. And right. it was so, you know, it was such a loaded scene to get to. But you built on it a bit. Like the writing is, for want of a better word, it's longer, but there are, there are more twists and turns. Yeah, through. we opened it up for the actors. I mean, I think, Greg, you had asked us to start writing sides differently than the scripts. In doing so, you're sort of liberated because when you're writing a script, you know, you know, you can't write the scenes to go on forever and you got to really cut them down to their their basics. But when you write them for sides, you get to kind of let a scene breathe in a way you normally don't for a television show. So every once in a while, we let it breathe in a way that we felt like, oh, let's let's grab that and throw that back into the script. I think it happened, you know, more than once. And then on the other end, sometimes when I'm watching the show and I see a scene, I'm like, well, wait a minute. What about the next two lines? And then I remember, oh, that wasn't in the production draft. That was, that was just for the auditions. What? This obviously was an important scene, Anthony. You're in the middle of shooting. We're halfway through the shoot, and now you have to do this. Well, that's one of the things about being halfway through the shoot to do something like this. Because Ivana and I already have a genuine rapport. We already sort of know each other's chemistry and how we move around each other. And then one of the things, though, that I was really conscious of in this is not... You know, we sort of knew each other, so I wanted to sort of rip that apart. So on the night, I remember, and Ivana's great. She's so in the moment. She's, she'll go with whatever's happening. So one of the things I was conscious of is just not in a manipulative way, but just messing with her, making each take different, keeping her on her toes mm-hmm. as it would be in real life. And then I think the the great thing about her as well is if, you know, yeah, I like, 
to commit as much as possible to what, whatever we're doing. And she just, she's right in there with you, you know, she's so responsive. So yeah. One of the things awesome. I really respect about you guys cool. is that, and I've, I've not had the luxury of this on other shows when I see it happen, but you know, is that you guys are as present for each other when you're off camera as you are on, even sometimes more so, but you know, I've, you know, I've seen you just rip yourself to shreds and you're not even on camera so that, that you can feed what your partner in the scene is doing. And that's, you know, that's a great. I think that the important thing, because, you know, we're on such a tight schedule, every take, whether it's yours or the other person's yeah. is valuable. You might discover something that when you turn around, if you hadn't gone there for the off take, you wouldn't have discovered. That said, you could, you can also, you can blow your chips. In, in when you you're know, all camera, things being but... equal, do you prefer to, you know, after the master is shot, do you prefer to do your close-ups first or do you prefer to do them after? Or is it scene to scene? It, it, it's sort of scene to scene, depending on what's going on, depending on the vibe that I get from the other person where they're at as well. If someone looks like they're going to blow, you know, if someone's really fired up at the start, I'm quite happy to hand it over and go, look, do them, but mm. do them first. Because I know that I've, I can sort of manage that and keep a little bit in the tank. Uh, some people just don't know simple. Um, for, for later on. That right. car that Sugar drives, I feel like five Very times we sure. use that car, it on, doesn't so. start. No, it's <laughs> that was the funniest scene. That, that took like yeah, four or five takes to just get him to get the car moving. Because <laughs> he doesn't drive. Dude, you're so ripped in this scene. What was your like workout regime? How did you physically inhabit Lucas Hood? How did you prepare for that? It was interesting because the build-up, you know, I, w I was working in Australia and I didn't have much time to right, And when we cast you, when we cast you, you definitely didn't have that physique exactly. No, I was pretty chubby. I had a nice little spare tire around my waist. But, uh, but so we I, believed in you. That's really kind of you. I appreciate it. Uh, so I panicked and, like, just hit the gym and a treadmill a lot, you know. It, I mean, the, great, the thing about not having that time was that it kept things looking very realistic. It wasn't like I went off and became some big huge puffy buff guy because yeah. that's not the kind of look that we wanted that's not the kind of guy that this guy is you know anything that would be there would be the result of you know quite practical training learning to box and totally. and survival in, in, inside yeah this is hood so there's a reality it's not you didn't want to get like massive and ripped or look yeah and it, it didn't like it just didn't seem like the guy i've seen shows where like season two already comes back totally jacked and it's like it just isn't it says something about character, and I think here it's exactly that, that everything is out of, like, you know, fitness and running and trying to get rid of his demons and pull-ups and the kind of yeah. stuff that he could do in prison. Functionality, you know? Yeah. So a lot of the training that we did as well was was just that. We had a trainer that had us sort of shaking big, thick ropes and doing things that were really quite functional movements that got a lot of the body, yeah. body moving at once. It was great. And this, and this moment when you talk about something that was always in your head, you know, both this last shot with the shovel, you know, because I think we had to keep hitting the story of the 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 real Lucas Hood and the hole in the hand, so we mm -hmm. identified it in episode 10 as well. But, you know, you stepping up in a frame saying this is Hood is like when it was on. Like, musically, that's when it was on. Yeah. And, you know, and, those, and the story really started to propel, you know, and that we... And that we also reflected that and what was going to happen to follow Methodic Doubt's music is really driving these next couple of scenes while all the elements are starting to come together. Mm. Lucas Hood. Church, Oregon. Shouldn't be a problem. 
unless he's a mother yeah, Greg, as somebody who who had really directed largely not premium cable shows to this point do you find a certain freedom in being able to just craft scenes with absolutely you know none of the concerns you have with networks in terms of how to shoot it what you're allowed to shoot what they're allowed to say etc like do you feel liberated i felt i felt let loose and and in that like i, I had to consciously be aware that these are just now I just have more paintbrushes. I just got, you know, I can I can paint with language and sexuality and violence in a way that is enhancing the tapestry, but never feels impressed with itself. You know, one of the yeah. cues I took for Banshee was, you know, looking at the great science fiction films, you know, where people just, you know, one of the great things in Blade Runner is that everybody exists in that universe. Nobody's impressed that their cars fly because cars fly. So nobody, you know, the the sexuality and the violence and these other things that I now had access to were very important to me that they they were as much part of it and they didn't be like oh look at what we can do and yeah, what we yeah, can yeah. show and that they were always coming from some place of character that, that we could that we you know that we could hey. explain that and i think one of the things that jonathan you and i worked on too was also yeah, like weeding out space. stuff that wasn't there organically in places you know sometimes in the ancillary characters but i love you know for me like i also love you know being a comic book geek and being someone that loves the origin of things and and in a way you know the the additional content which is also going to be included on the dvd all the all the all prequel the stories you know was was first originated out of you know the the game wouldn't it be cool to see this and that really started with seeing what happened what did the real lucas hood do when he came into the forge you know what are those first couple of minutes that we didn't get to see and then that started branching out into a series of characters backstories and and the great thing was that you know we found you know it, it added work for us but everybody was excited to start seeing their characters backstories just to jump in for a second about a visual thing you know we uh use a, a lens treatment here called it's a lens called the lens baby and that is what throws the background out of focus and it again requires a certain participation of the camera operator to be messing you know kind of shifting the lens so that that we can go in and out of focus which is one of the techniques we use to do a certain subjectivity and here especially i love the the way that we've you know gotten inside lucas's head by by the way he has to like you know, almost try to run away from his past mm. yeah, and in the, the the confines of any room are difficult for him after 15 years in jail like waking up in in that apartment is hard for him he needs to get out immediately and get to the open air well it's so. funny because the, I, I looked at it like there is no comfort zone for him i mean the open air is to a certain extent a daunting spot it's just it's a moment to moment thing you know yeah whatever sort of feels right. He's, in, he's animalistic in that way at this point, like acting on instinct. That impulsiveness, you know, we, Anthony, you know, and I talked about, you know, the fact that he was, you know, when he was arrested at, in his early twenties, he was frozen emotionally in that moment in time. Mm. And he still acts, you know, like an impulsive 20 year old, but the rest of the world is not operating that way. And, and in a way, season one is in some ways the coming of age of Lucas Hood, you feel the growth and the and one of the things I love about the writing is all the natural consequences. We don't artificially try to you know hold back so that we can sustain the length of the series. It's mm. you know what happens and the immediacy of it happens when you insert somebody you know, into somebody else's life unwillingly and and all the the negativity that ripples out. You know and Lucas, I, you know one of the things I love having just rewatched episode ten is is the decisions and and realizing that like you know I brought this on and I need to now pay the price for the things that I've done and. And that is so different than the guy that shows up at town. Hundred percent. He's a different. Yeah. He's a different guy. Like I say, like I look at it, like he's an animal. In one, he's really very simple, very basic, really working on instinct. And by by ten, you know, the toolkit of just using your fists to solve your problems isn't going to work anymore. And I love that. 
yeah. that that it's process of uh, that journey that he goes through through the entire series of re- like that slowly realizing that he has to come up with alternative methods to solve his problems, and then in ten, of course, you know he he you know gives himself up, which in one he's very focused on you know what about me, what do I get, what happened to me. By ten, he's actually very selfless, um, which is a great arc for the series. Mm-hmm. What happened to your title fight? Oh, I knocked it off the hook the other night, busted up the frame. I'm having it redone. I always think about this scene with with Proctor. There's something about it, and maybe the fact that Alan Ball was an executive producer on the show as well, but there are moments where I think, you know, I've heard from a number of viewers based on the promos and based on this scene right here where he stops at the anvil, where people started to wonder if there was a supernatural element to our show. You know, there isn't, of course, but some of the some of the storylines and maybe, you know, having Alan's name on the show, it's like they wondered, like, you know, is Proctor some kind of demon? There were moments where people wondered about that, which I found kind of amusing. But I, what is know. the inspiration for Kai Proctor? We uh, we wanted to have a, a villain who's not completely a villain, just like our hero isn't completely a hero. We wanted we wanted everybody to have um, an issue with their identity. We wanted everybody to be kind of reinventing themselves in some way. So taking somebody who grew up Amish and then was shunned by the Amish community and is deeply scarred by that shunning and at the same time still connected to his past and still in some ways you know, attached to the parents who don't speak to him and to the community that won't talk to him, and at the same time is so angry, and so everything he's doing out in the world now is almost a reaction to that. It makes him very dangerous, very violent, but at the same time, you see the hurt kid that's in there, the hurt 18-year-old who was shunned by his community, and and occasionally, you know, Proctor earns your sympathy, and, and there are times where where you kind of feel like, hey, Lucas, who's the guy we're all supposed to be rooting for, you know, He's a little bit of an asshole, and Proctor's actually. I feel bad for Proctor. I feel like we should change the subject. It's because Ulrich is just so charming. <laughs> yeah, such a little charmer. Ulrich, Ulrich brought a lot um, of charisma to the role. You guys wrote this scene in there. Tell me a little bit about what you know, the the your own inspiration and, and you know on sexuality for the show. Well, what we wanted to do was show Carrie's um, arc. This is the first season. She's seeing Lucas for the first time in 15 years, and we want to see how it's starting to pervade every aspect of her life. Including her sexuality, and so, you know, this is a married couple that's been together for a while, and yet, now she's having sex with him. She's probably always carried a piece of Lucas with her, but now he has completely invaded her consciousness, so even her very, you know, apparently very good sex life with her husband uh, is now being invaded the same way her community's being invaded, her family's being invaded, you know, her intimacy is being invaded, and we wanted to reflect that, you know, she can't get away from him. It's funny, you know, as I've taken the pilot around, people, you know, keep, you know, the buzzword is like, oh, you know, they, they can't say the word sex without saying gratuitous, and and I challenge back, you know, I had a, I had a room full of uh, USC students that were like, you know, oh, you know, the wild the gratuitous sex i'm like well tell me why you think it's gratuitous well it's not necessary for the character i'm like well here's where, here's where i disagree with that because that scene in the bedroom specifically shows three things it shows that uh she's been married 15 years she's having sex during the day that's good his her husband's going down on her after 15 years that's good hmm. and she's psychologically somewhere else while she's with this guy that is not i think it was very important it was also trying to show very specifically 
that she's not some bored housewife and just looking for some adventure. This is a lot about the relationship that, that, you know, that he's going down on her, you know, where the power dynamic is in that relationship. Totally. Well, also that she really does have something to lose. It's not like, well, I'm in this boring marriage, so you're here. She loves her husband and she's got a great thing going and, and he's become a huge threat to her by showing up. There's actually through all the sex scenes were really quite considered and there was a lot going on in all of them. Um, if people care to look at it, you know, if people, exactly. if people want to find that. Totally. If they get switched off and just feel that jarring effect, oh, there's sex on screen, then they are oblivious to yeah. what's going and that on. Was, and for me, you know, in terms of, you know, the actual direction of those, you know, we rehearse them away from set, you know, they're all sort of worked out mechanically and everybody knows what's, so that, you know, that we can take that time. I mean, all these scenes were, were usually figured out on the floor of my office and, you know, it was important to try to solve you know what is it that we're trying to say with these and also and for me visually i didn't want to editorialize them i wanted yeah. to i wanted to witness them so we either really you know we're either in there seeing what's happening exactly how it's happening and that or we're in on the faces and, that, and they really don't sort of vary from that right. one of my favorite shots is coming up but i'll tell you when it comes <laughs> yeah I love this scene. I think it's great. This is the first time that you that I see anyway. How fierce Job is. How fierce Job is. And this is also when you begin to understand the layers of the show that that you kind of forgot about New York now that Lucas is in Banshee, and then yeah. we come back here and we realize there's a whole other thing going on here besides him showing up in Banshee. There are these gangsters in New York that are tracking him, and that you start to realize that a lot of worlds are going to collide because he showed up. Mm. You know, the Ukrainian gangster thing, these sort of heightened elements are things that I, I, you know, love as a fan of the show. I mean, the great thing was, and that means uh, you're fucked. That means you're Ukrainian. fucked? Ukrainian. Okay, yeah. thanks. No. Uh, I'm not sure how that came about. Does that something that you guys... Uh, it was a Schickler thing. David just, I think, decided that whenever they were doing the production design on the card, he decided to put it in there as kind of a uh, little private shout-out to our Ukrainian fans. Right, exactly. That's They're, one of David's Some people, Schickler. actually, I've seen people that you know, out of Ukraine or Russia or so forth that have tweeted that, like, think that is so funny. <laughs> they've like they've like screenshotted that and then they're they're writing in Russian with a lot of like hashtag banshee and exclamation points and they clearly have gotten the joke. So I'm glad we didn't subtitle it. In fact, I'm really glad that the network, you know, Cinemax and being at the ground floor of this rebranding of Cinemax to, to kind of fill the void on television of, of you know what what we call high end pulp, you know, it's been great that they took the chances and that that they you know, let us get into unconventional ways of approaching scenes and embraced that and kind of even pushed us to go further in places. You know, this both. is my favorite shot. <laughs> I love this bit here. What is just the, oh. the robe flowing behind. Yeah, him. there's something so cool about that. And, and this here is our, our little uh, tribute to Die Hard. Yeah, the, exactly. uh, the driver in the car. The driver that seems to have forgotten about the tension. And he's yeah, just exactly. jamming in the he's car. He's just rocking right. out to Justin Bieber-esque yeah. music. There's bad men in there, and, and they're and about to get blown thank, up. Thank Greg, I was there the day we blew up that explosion, so th there's no visual effects. There's effect. no visual effects. That's, that's all. That's the real deal. And yeah. it was, and, and when we saw it with an audience for the first time, you know, we've, we've, I've watched each of these episodes probably 40, 50, 60 times in different forms. And when we saw that with an audience twice, people literally cheered. Like, yeah, they, they were, were so on board. Love it. Yeah. And then they knew that there's there's fun to the show, right? You know, like the Frankie Lucas stuff was kind of warming them up, you know, because he always has a 
you know, some wisdom or a one-liner to dole out, but... Um, no, you don't work for money. And it should be said that that scene was shot before the clip that they made from SNL, oh, yeah, yeah, people yeah, yeah. walking away from explosions. Explosions without looking at them, yeah, yeah. which we definitely played into. Talk about the cat. How'd you guys come up with, like, the idea of it? So the idea of the sheriff's department was also, you know, we've just seen too many shows with police departments, and it would be boring, and, and we decided to take the theme of reinvention and apply it to the sheriff's department as well, that it would, first of all, it would reflect the economics of the time, that that this is a down economy right now. And when the sheriff's department burned down, they couldn't build another one. And the Cadillac dealership had gone out of business, so they just moved the police department into the Cadillac dealership. And to me, that makes Banshee, it's a very Banshee feeling that this is a police department that used to be a, a car dealership. And this is Brock Lotus, our longest serving member of the department. All right. How you doing, Sheriff? You fucking fascist! I didn't even do anything! Oh, yeah, you're a model citizen. Yeah, one of the things that, that got said a lot during the course of making the show was bancheizing, you know, whatever we were seeing. So the things felt textured and and lived in. And, you know, we, we tried to do this with, like, certain color schemes and textures on the walls so that, you know, a car dealership can be very bright and sterile, you know, because you're trying to make it about the cars. But we imagined that there was some quick... Uh, you know, putting up of partitions and cells and so forth to make this place kind of functional of whatever they could recover. And, you know, getting into the look of things, we didn't want things to be too slick or too distracting. You know, I was one of the, the cast to pop out of but, that. But it's yeah. a great example of where production can take writing to the next level because actually in writing the caddy, I did picture a, a shiny, gleaming car dealership. And, and then, yes, and then once you guys had established what Banshee looks like and what our color palette is and how things should look, it was interpreted very differently and I think, you know, a much superior version to the one that I had envisioned when I wrote the, the initial, you know, idea of it. Well, the town, you know, the town and the texture of the town, like, started to speak for itself. And actually, like, on a practical level, five towns make Banshee out of Charlotte. So we, we base out of Charlotte, which is kind of our, our ground zero, and we use uh, North Carolina for Pennsylvania. And, Working with with the the crew and the and the talent that is in North Carolina was very exciting for us, and so, you know, we wanted to show the town through the character going through it versus like doing helicopter shots and doing things that weren't organic. You know, I'm always I, you know, visually I never want to be ahead of the characters. Like we're waiting for Lucas's car to pull up as though the crew anticipated that Lucas's car. I'd rather be in the car with the characters and you know, scene like this, especially like you're getting a visual sense of the town a little bit and the way we drive in the streets. It's not like small hick town. It's it's actually like a pretty decent size. It's actually probably not that different than the town I, I grew up in and just out in, in Massachusetts. So we tried to show the town through the way Lucas experiences it. I don't start till Monday. So there's nothing stopping us from fucking your shit up today. This scene right here, I think, is, is the product of really many, many years of my childhood spent watching Bruce Lee and Chuck Norris and, you know, all those guys getting surrounded by three or four guys. And, you know, what was important to us in setting up the Banshee aesthetic is, yes, Lucas is going to be able to take down multiple assailants, but he's not going to do it the way Chuck Norris and Bruce Lee do it, where, you know, he never gets hit and he wins every fight. You know, we wanted to make sure it was clear that when you fight a bunch of guys, even one guy, no matter, you know, the victory goes to the person who wants it more, but it's not necessarily a clean, you know, I think, Anthony, you spent a good chunk of the season with blood on you all over the... You know. Yeah, and you're actually fighting on the rocks here. Yeah. It should be noted. Yeah, we were fighting on rocks. Most all of the, the places that we fought were real, whether it be a river or a pond of mud or 
whatever. I got mixed up in quite a few different different environments. But it was, you know, that that was one of the elements that we worked on on set a lot as well, is keep being really mindful of that struggle. So that every time a fight came up, you know that it's, oh, the hero's not just going to walk in and wipe the floor with the bad guy. Exactly. Right. You know what I mean? It's going to be a human going through an experience. The in these predetermined fights. outcome. Plus, it's also important that we landed, you know, shots of Brock here because, again, we're going to, Brock's the audience right now. Like, he doesn't understand what just happened. Kind of and it's like, it? yeah, he, he, he can't take it. He can't even believe it. You know, and this, it's real Western scene. This. Yeah, I mean, I even shot it like kind of high noon, you know, yeah. down low of you guys sort of squaring off like we're meeting out on Main Street of, of uh, Tombstone. Yeah. <laughs> so it's. Um... And this is the first time we meet the Moody's as well, right? Yeah, yeah I love them. And they come up, they, they sprinkle through the entire series. Yeah, I love yeah. them. I really do. Like, I just, I, I love that they tie back to the very end of the uh, season as well. But this but... is, I love the way you frame that shot with Proctor and Lucas and just sort of standing four feet apart talking to each other. There's something really mythic about the way they're, they're meeting there. The scripts, which I think are a great guide for us to, to shoot, you know, in editorial, you know, we start to take all your ideas that have come from the script and start intercutting. So like, this was its own sort of separate scene. The, you know, Lucas going across the street to the pawn shop was its own scene. And we started to try to, tie and weave things together both for pace but also so you just didn't start getting into some kind of predictable rhythm on the show you know you never knew what what you would kind of leave off next and also you know even by intercutting lucas and and, and proctor you tie them closer together as they're getting further apart sure and what's happened is that that now drives the writing because now when we're doing the writing we actually kind of write in the style that that you created in the cutting and we actually will now more often write the intercut into the actual script because mm -hmm. that's become part of the language of the show kind of out of necessity we we drop in here we were just all talking before about you know some of the stuff that's coming in season two but one of the things that we learned sometimes out of necessity by what we could accomplish based on our, our schedule and our budget was you know we, it's just sometimes better to drop into the middle of something and let the audience catch up and also, you know, so they don't start expecting that things are just going to follow a beginning, middle, and end. Sometimes we're in the middle, sometimes we're in the end, sometimes we're looking back. Well, that's one of the great things about the show. You never know what's coming and you never know, you know, where each episode is going to start, let alone finish. Now, for you here, how far, you know, do you feel Lucas, like, knows this is his daughter? Like, he, do you think he had an inkling? Yeah, we talked about, a, like, having that gut instinct, you know, this is someone that's in a, in a very instinctual place at the moment, and that, just that unknown quantity that, that you just instinctively know that someone is kin or, or you have some kind of bond with that you can't necessarily explain, you can't necessarily I mean, put this, word to it. This but. moment right here, when you see that... that Carrie lied about her age. Mm. Like to me, when people ask, when does he figure out that she's his daughter? Like to me, by the end of this pilot, it's come together for him. Yeah, I should. I would say by the end of the first episode, he's 90% sure. I think it's one of those things where, you know, the heart, you know, what's that saying? The heart doth, the heart knows things, the head doth, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, um, <laughs> I, thought he was, you know, was, I think that was, well said, that was Shakespeare. Well was it? The heart knows things, doth, doth, blah, blah, blah. Uh. And no, but you know, free the train, heart, free the, train. The heart and the yes. guts knows, I think, instinctively, right away, right, that she is someone ex very close, and that. And she's then you need to collect the evidence. Daughter. And then the brain's just got to catch up. Right. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. The what? The, talk about a slaughterhouse setting for Proctor. What was the as a, as a front? Well, He's actually in the meats. Proctor's in the meat business, and uh, it gives him a, a place where where he can conduct all his real illicit businesses uh, without a lot of 
prying eyes and and a slaughterhouse is a great place as it turns out to get rid of bodies and evidence and and things like that men will pay for tits until um, and also just you know his amish roots of having come from a farm make him very comfortable with cattle and and meat and it's it's the kind of business that you know an amish farmer could go into once he's left the farm i think there's a good banshee origins to be had of how proctor and burton came to collaborate sure <laughs> yeah isn't Ulrich vegan? <laughs> this must have been tough for him to shoot. <laughs> but now, Burton, what was the... You talk about not coming out of central casting. I mean, that's a very specific... Men that wear bow ties in their day-to-day -day is a very specific kind of guy. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because somebody online recently made the comparison of Burton to Proctor as uh, Smithers to Mr. Burns on The Simpsons. And, and that was a little bit... You know, that was a little bit what we had in mind to some extent, which was just that a guy... A, a, a guy who's some kind Smithers. of... You mean lovers? <laughs> well, a guy who's some kind of sociopath but has this deep, unabiding love. I mean, look how he's standing there watching his boss pound the shit out of this guy. He's just sort of like, he is a little bit in love with Proctor. He will die for Proctor without ever questioning it. And we don't fully understand when that imprinting happened, but Burton is like a child imprinted on his parent with Proctor. Mm -hmm. And he will do anything. And as the season goes on, you realize he will really do anything. for his boss, and he's also just, you know, he's a dangerous fuck. The great thing about him is you never know what's going on. Yeah. It's, he's so very odd. And I like how you guys wrote it in to, you know, to show that Proctor is physically capable. You know, we cast a little against the scripted type that he's not this hulking mass, you right. know, or that he's yeah, not. Yeah, we definitely originally pictured, we, we definitely scripted a larger man than Ulrich. And the trick was to, to make you feel that he still would be dangerous and up to the task of taking on Lucas and you know as the season went on and, and the stunt guys trained him you'll see by the time he and Lucas get into any real physical fighting that uh they've really sold you that this guy is super dangerous who so, came up with this scene yeah talk about this this scene just falls into the whole concept of of Proctor's inability his anger at the Amish and at the same time his inability to escape them you know this this cross on his back which is so not Amish which is an angry sort of you know almost spit in the face of religion the fact that he's making you know the the hooker look like an Amish girl giving giving him head it's all just he's so confused and screwed up about how he feels about God religion and his people that he's at the same time he's keeping them close and lashing out at them and you're never sure if he's going to protect them or try to kill them he seems weirdly detached in this scene To me, I yeah. don't know if he if that was intended or not, but he seemed. Then tying in all our scars, our physical and emotional scars. Sure, but but the thing in that scene before was also that Proctor is not coming in there and getting that 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 blowjob because he just was in a fight. He's doing it because he just saw his father, right. and and so it's just the anger he feels towards his father fuels a lot of what he does. You got any family coming to the swearing in? No. The little touches you guys add into the scripts of, you know, pulling the bone out of the knuckle, you know, it's like, mm. those are great. Those are great for me to grab onto because they, they really inform me how to shoot and where to take, you know, the, the series uh, itself. You know, we weren't exclusively a handheld show, you know, but we definitely use it for, you know, because I do have a kind of general philosophy of like wanting the actors to discover the scene and you go, I'll follow, you know, like I can, I can visually make it interesting. You know, I'm, I, I just want the actors to be comfortable and inhabit their space. And, you know, and these little moments, like, I, I think, like, that is gold of, of Lucas looking in the mirror and being like, like, you know. I remember that on the day, you coming up, you coming over and saying, I find it funny. 
Yeah, yeah. Buddy, have a little laugh. Look at yourself. Go with it. Yeah, it's like you're in a cop outfit, and it's not Halloween. Those little moments of humor and lightness as well. They, they, yeah, they're very they important. Balance everything show. out. Really sure. Well. Otherwise, it gets a little too heavy. I, I but can't. the way the way Greg that you cut all this together in the intercuts, which is not how it was initially written, I think gave gave it a tremendous visceral energy boost to the show. Where where you know this whole sort of Martin Scorsese type thing where everything is happening and now we're seeing the whole thing come together. It, it gave a a tremendous energy to Lucas's. We, you know, we just wrote the swearing in, really, and you know, you sort of put these all together in a way that I think has has emotional heft and really uh, gives, gives the, a real propulsion to the show. Thank you. I remember the email I wrote you where I'm like, I need a scene of Job like doing something to like, and you're like, I think I know where you're going with all this. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, it was to really take the swearing in, and then you know, for for those that you know that have seen it and watching it. You know, the images are lining up with what he's saying, so that I love that he's like swearing to God on this thing, and yet everything that he's seeing and doing is a total lie. Just, you know, which is something we're also exploring in season two. Sure. This for me is like everything bottlenecks into that little, little montage. All these threads have been woven together and they bottleneck down into this doorway. And that's like the door being <laughs> opened. Right. And now we move into the show proper. I mean, as an actor, do you have to have some thought of the cinema beyond the scene? Are you just in the scene and doing that and trusting the cinema around you? Or do you kind of know that, you know, as I'm doing this, that this is going to be fueling these images that are going to be happening sometimes underneath what I'm saying and doing? I've got to be honest, in, the, in this first series, it was difficult to get a, get a handle on that. And for the most part, we just, you know, I was pretty reliant on on the director's input as well. And sort of get, and, and that's a difficult thing coming into a first series where you want to, Everyone wants to be instantly out of the gates, bolting and, and you know, hitting the ball sweet every time, but you can't do that. You know, sometimes you got to get it wrong to get it right. So you need those, the directors, we had great directors, like keeping you in line. And of course, you having the God's eye view is, is, is great. And you sort of got to jump in and just right. trust. Trust is really. good. We, play know, everything as honestly as you can, you know. We are a director-centric show. I think one of the nice things, you know, that I think Ivana said it on Twitter the other day that, you know, we're indie TV, that, you know, there's a real collaboration between director and writer, that it's a, that it's a, that it's a partnership medium. It's not a writer medium, it's not a director medium, but it's a real true partnership that both the writing, you know, enhances the directing, directing enhances the writing. It's like everybody's collaborating to the greater good of the show. And I think that, you know, that's something that, you know, having the shorthand of directors that can really, you know, take, you know, such rich and deep material that, you know, is so different than anything else on television. It really, we needed and really looked for more, um, you know, film directors or indie directors that had done some television versus the other way around. Yeah. It's fucking combat. Sheriff Hood, I'd like you to meet Chief Benjamin Longshadow of the local Kanaho tribe. Good friend and a great man, revered in that chief. Good to meet you, Chief. What's great about this whole party scene is that after that whole swearing in montage, it struck me the first five or six times I watched the pilot, like after the whole swearing in montage, you kind of feel like, okay, that's where we end the first episode. And then the fact that afterwards you suddenly have this big party, it just, it made the pilot feel so robust that there's just so much going on in this first episode. And we tried to carry that into all episodes this season, I think with the exception of episode seven, which is our shortest episode. And one of the things coming out of network television going to cable is that you know, these stories are as long as short as they need to be told. And mm. 
you know, when all is said and done, that the result, if I could work backwards from the result, is that I wanted the audience to have a very full, rich meal and feel satisfied. In fact, the audience, you know, just going off the response on Twitter, really noticed that Seven was much shorter. They felt like yeah, a little cheated. And that's great because that to me says that they're they're so deeply invested with the, to the rhythm in which we're telling stories. It's great, but we won't do it again. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're on Friday nights, you know, and people giving their Friday night, you know, there's some responsibility to entertain them. And I, I also like that we have the, you know, the scene at the end credits that the whole, like from start to finish, like you don't want to miss anything. Come here for a sec. I love this very Tarantino-esque. Yeah, I like There's a whole montage of Tarantino films of people uh, opening trunks. Into trunks. Yeah. Come on, it's the least you can do. You know, I think most people get that that safe came out of the pawn shop to the the crater he was looking yeah. into during the montage. And yeah. every once in a while, there are people who are like, "What's that in his?" Because uh, the way it is in the car, it's not so obviously a safe yeah. at first. And it's it actually just, also the safe that we use in the title sequence. It's the, it's the uh, same safe. It's the same safe. Wow. Yeah, we use we used it for that, it's which awesome. also you know symbolically and ties you know ties everything sure. together this surprises oh. me every time yeah it's great yeah. i just everyone I, jumps i, I never I, jumps. I even you no know directing it and, and looking through the uh the monitor when we shot it it surprised me and avana you know the thing i love too is that you know beyond that she has great chemistry with rush she also is like wickedly funny and i love i love things like in episode four which does just shut the fuck up and here when she's like mm -hmm. a sheriff are you fucking kidding me like and her reaction to seeing you was perfectly modulated at the party where it wasn't so big, but yeah. it clearly was thrown. And then this, and this of course, people love that. Yeah, where you realize she's a superhero. She's yeah, like, like, oh, like, yeah. oh, wait a second, I showed my... And I love when Burton's ready to kill somebody, he takes his glasses off. That's a... Yeah, it's business time. It's business. It's like super, very Superman. You know, we, yeah. we kept coming back to kind of, you know, that sort of iconic and mythic sort of moments. And, and it was great to have that to geek out on, you know? And the misdirect that you think Burton's going to take him, and then, and even then, they start smelling the criminal on him, you know. Yeah. But they can't place it. One of the great barriers, and this is that's such a great I love reaction. Russ like, is looking up at her like, "What are you?" Yeah, like, exactly. You, yeah. Way to emasculate your husband. <laughs> Gee yeah. whiz! But I like that her instinct kicks on. Like she's been activated, you know. Right, like yeah. it's very uh... Catwoman. Yeah. Exactly. And then, and then when you think it's still done, yeah, you go back, you to, New back York, to New York, and then you really know what the show is going to be. This is the promise of, of everything that, you know, 8, 9, 10 deliver, you know, in the season. And I like that. I loved uh, working with Chris Vass. He was, uh, this was really his first American uh, project. He was from Greece. We really filled out the cast nicely with actors not from America. Like, I love that Anthony's from New Zealand. And, and uh, Ant, you know, this is your first American show also, right? This is your first? Stateside. The, uh, the, on yeah. this side of the, the yeah. ditch. Yeah, and this yeah kind of Ulrich's from Denmark. There's a, you've got a, a very international bunch. International yes. bunch, which really, you know, it's great because everybody just, you know, my artistic influence is, you know, so many European films and filmmakers that it's just great because I feel that we can, you know, I mean, Ben being from England and, and mm -hmm. living in Bulgaria and Chris being from Greece and you being from New Zealand and Ivana being from Croatia and and uh, Ulrich being from Denmark. Like, it's, it's just great because it's you guys are all so phenomenally talented and then to to bring everybody in a new way to the states is exciting it's exciting it and it a creates really... a texture to the show yeah. where everything feels a little bit other because yes. nobody is just that all-american you know everything. the all-american sensibility isn't yeah. quite there mm -hmm. you know what i mean it's our interpretation thereof so yeah. it's slightly askew yeah yeah you will find them both 
and giving Ben a great reveal and coming into focus and really trying to set up that. And then the, the Banshee, you know, end thing, you know, we had, uh, it just seemed the right thing to do. I think even Ivana had mentioned like, you know, be cool that we like, you know, like end on Banshee as well. And that slam, like I actually found a short film that I made in school where like it did something very similar technique wise to slamming out the black and coming up on Banshee. And that's actually become actually actual scripted. Uh, and now we use that script or every time we end the script, it says slam to Banshee. Yeah. <laughs> hey, or you got, you the, got Banshee'd, what? You've got the button moment coming up, right? Yeah. How did you come up with them? Well, the, the, the it's, it's interesting. The initial idea was a little bit different. We talked about it. I still remember we were in a restaurant somewhere in Charlotte talking about it. And the idea was that at the end of the credits, we would always show something about one of the characters that was kind of revealing about them in a way that you wouldn't expect during the actual show. Mm. And that's how it started. But ultimately, it sort of evolved into showing little plot points to tease the viewer. Right. And as we get into season two, we're talking about which we prefer. Would we rather tease the viewer a little bit or would we rather show something new and deeper and darker mm. about somebody that you wouldn't have otherwise seen? Which really in 8, 9, 10, if you're missing out, you're missing out at your own peril. Right, because we're, yeah. we're actually telling stories. Yeah, yeah, which is great because then people are sort of trained. <laughs> well, it was so good. I'm Greg Utanis. It was so great to be able to talk shop with everybody. Jonathan Tropper, very nice to uh, spend this time with you. Anthony Stapp, signing off.